0: When the Buddha describes the practice of mindfulness of breathing, he begins by saying that a practitioner goes into the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty building empty forest hut and sits down cross-legged with the body erect and establishes mindfulness all around, establishes mind awareness all around, and then mindfully breathes in and mindfully breathes out. There's a second sutta where the Buddha teaches his son, and presumably his son is older in the first story, because the Buddha has ascertained that his son is ready for the deepest teachings, teachings on liberation And to offer him these teachings, he takes him for a walk into the woods, and they come to a a grove of trees, And, and in India at that time there were these majestic trees called the Sal tree or Sala tree which is kind of like the redwood tree of Northern India. That has these above ground roots, buttresses that come down. So Buddha took his son to the, this grove of trees and the Buddha sat down on one of the roots of this tall, majestic tree. And his son sat to the side to receive the teachings. So here again, to go into the woods, into the forest. I don't know what that evokes for you. Imagine different things for different people. But one of the things that evokes for me is simplicity. To be in a natural setting like that So many of the social concerns and conventions fall away. So many of the preoccupations of urban life fall away. In Japan, they have a practice that's called forest bathing. People go into the forest just to bathe in the good feelings of the forest air and environment. As if there's something nurturing, supportive, Something about the simplicity of just being alive, breathing, being upright, sitting maybe in that kind of timeless presence that you might feel sitting next to a thousand year old redwood tree or 2000 year old redwood tree. the strength of it, the solidity of it, the beingness of just being. History, all the events of histories, they come and they go, they come and they go, century after century, and this redwood tree stands there. What kind of presence would it be like, what kind of way of being would it be like for you to feel to, to be in this world with that kind of stability, strength, presence. Maybe, maybe these trees have a kind of equanimity as the course of history rolls through, rolls by. Many people go into the woods, into the natural world to get a different perspective on themselves and their lives. I was touched many years ago reading a, a short autobiographical story of a young girl. I don't know how old she was, but Whatever age, she was whatever age makes the story most meaningful for you. (laughs) And she um, had a haircut that did not go well for her. She was pretty upset, didn't want to go to school. And so her father said, "Come along with me." And they got in the car, and they drove for a while beyond the edges of town, up in the mountains a bit, and they found a parked a place where they overlooked a vast expanse of the earth of nature, of the mountains and the forests and the rivers and sky. And the father said, "Look." look around and then he said the earth does not care about your, earth, your your haircut. your earth is here to hold you regardless of the haircut that you have so many years later she wrote this story because that made a huge difference for her Somehow she was able to just maybe, I don't know if accept is the right word, word, but to not have her identity, have her well-being tied to her haircut. There was a bigger thing here than maybe what her friends at school thought or said. When people, one of the ways that the word dharma has been translated into English is as the, by the English word nature. The great Thai teacher, Buddhadasa, translated dharma as nature Everything is Dharma, everything is nature. And then one of the reasons why monastics, forest monastics lives in the forest, is because they believe the forest teaches them the Dharma, shows them a perspective on life, realities of life that directly applicable to their own lives as they see nature inside themselves. The great majesty of redwood trees, perhaps the nourishing stillness of a fresh forest walk, a great view of mountains and ridges receding into the background. Sitting at the edge of a river Mountain Creek and watching the watching and listening to the water ripple by Sitting peacefully watching the sunset over the ocean. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. Perhaps a few moments when the whole earth seems to be still, quiet. Everything feels like it's as it should be. So that can be found within the natural world we have within ourselves Sometimes that's the maybe the real wilderness within. The Buddha talked about the wilderness of the heart or the, he didn't mean it in a good way. Lost in confusion and conflict. But there's nature in us. And the natural world is found in our breathing. How long ago did our first ancestor begin breathing? What creature back through time First, had lungs and took in a breath, took in air, and exhaled oxygen. And people who run the numbers say that whatever air went in and out through that creature, some particles of it are in the air that you're breathing now. An important moment for me was a day I walked out into courtyard at University of California Davis Central Valley and there were some majestic oak trees in the courtyard and then they come just from a botany class that taught the cycles of oxygen and CO2 the carbon cycles. We had this big cycles on the blackboard and walked out of the classroom and stood looking at the oak tree. Something inside of me went silent in a kind of awe. And something inside of me reflected, maybe without words, about where do I start and where does a tree begin? I need the tree to make oxygen more than I need my hand or my, one of my kidneys or all kinds of parts that I'm kind of attached to literally and emotionally. I don't really need, I don't have to have, but I need the tree. I wouldn't go very long without the tree, without the oxygen. And it was a very important moment for me to feel kind of be part of the natural world, to place me within nature, as part of nature, maybe as the part of nature that sees itself, nature looking at itself, through this amazing capacity we have to be aware. Is it our awareness, I'm aware, or is there something, other way of understanding it, is it the world aware of itself? Is it nature aware of itself? So this breathing, breathing is a natural part of the natural world, the rhythm of coming and going of breath, the coming and going of breathing. coming and going of what keeps us alive. Bring in the oxygen that then circulates throughout this body in great rivers of blood. And one of the amazing things about, I think about this circulation system of blood is that the blood circulates around, I guess, it's kind of to feed or to support the rest of the body. And one part of the body that the blood feeds in a sense is the heart. And the heart is what pumps the blood around. This mutual support system, this cyclic flow of mutual support that's so intimate, so closely connected, that the very heart that pumps is the one that is fed. And this is, I think, also true for emotional heart. That which, through which we know and experience and feel and connect to the world. What is this that we have? Who are we? What is our hearts? What is the essence or the core? What is it inside? That can forest bathe us? What is it that we can open to, relax, settle into? What is it that we can awaken? That nourishes us? that gives us a new perspective, who we are, what we are, what we're not. What is it we can see and feel and experience within us? That's like driving up into the mountains and looking across the mountains and valleys and realizing maybe it doesn't matter so much, our haircut, Or many other things. Maybe in the great scheme of things, there's more important things to be done, more important things than being preoccupied with haircuts and the latest gadgets. or the various trends of popular culture. So many trends, they come and they go, not just trends in clothes or entertainment or language, but trends of politics, trends of all kinds of things. but to discover inside that which is nourishing, that which teaches us the Dharma, inspires the Dharma, the Dharma inside, the good heart inside, So the Buddha taught Anapanasati. It's a remarkable process if you step away from it as a technique. But rather than instructions of what to do, you see it or you experience it as a description of a natural process that comes when we get connected here, when we settle in here, when we allow the Dharma, allow the nature inside of us to unfold and show itself. And I wanted to, uh, give you, just recite for you a list of the verbs, the actions kind of, of each of the 16 steps. Don't, don't think about the rest of the kind of description, Just just the verbs. And how does this sit for you? What 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 is touched inside of you as you hear these verbs or these activities? Knowing. Experiencing. Relaxing. Experiencing. 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 Relaxing. Experiencing. Gladdening. Concentrating. liberating, observing, 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 except for perhaps gladdening and concentrating there's not a lot of active doing in this list knowing it's not exactly maybe you can see it as active but it's not like making something doing you know changing something striving for something, just to know. Experiencing in and of itself has no, ag- no agenda. It's not trying to accomplish something, but just experiencing. And then relaxing. I, mean, I guess that's trying to do something, but it's not making something, it's letting go of something. Observing, just observing. It's a remarkable collection of things, of actions. And one of the things that's remarkable about this is that it's creating conditions for the path of liberation to grow inside of you. It's creating conditions for the natural unfolding and nature inside of you are given the optimal conditions to unfold and to grow. It's like pulling the curtains on a greenhouse so the sun can come in. And if you do that, then the plants will grow in the sunlight. (laughs) And what does it take to trust that there's something inside of you that can grow like a plant if the conditions are in place? If the conditions are in place? Or do you have inside of yourself a mistrust? A fear? Or a greed or ambition? that is not patient enough to allow your inner nature to grow, to unfold. So in the Anapanasati Sutta, as I said at the beginning of the retreat, the overarching theme of the sutta is that of unification, that are bringing together in harmony, different elements of the Buddha's path of practice. And there are three basic elements that are explicitly shown to work in harmony, there's a 16 steps of Anapanasati, the four foundations of mindfulness, and the seven factors of awakening. That in cultivating the 16 steps of Anapanasati, When that's practiced frequently, one of its fruits is the four foundations of mindfulness are established, become strong. The sati becomes strong. And as this sati becomes strong, strong awareness of body, strong awareness of feelings, strong awareness of mental states, strong aware of the mental activities. Then there arise the seven factors of awakening. Another aspect of our inner nature. Perhaps like sitting maybe on the beach and watching a spectacular sunset. There are times when we sit on the beach of our mind and we watch the presence of mindfulness, investigation, Effort. Joy. Tranquility. Concentration. And equanimity. The seven factors of awakening. So in this Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha says that the 16 stages of breathing cultivate these other two. And when the seven factors of awakening are well established, then one attains true knowledge and deliverance, liberation, freedom. And who would have guessed that this simple act of hanging out with your breathing, getting centered, getting absorbed, giving yourself over to the body breathing could have so many beneficial consequences. Who would have guessed? And I think that a lot of what we're doing with mindfulness of breathing is learning to create the optimal conditions for this healthy, beautiful part of nature, the natural world within us, to operate and work, and come through us. For the nature inside of us, which is not who we identify as me. You can't, you can't, it's not possible to claim it. Appropriate it, appropriate it, appropriated by the self, but we allow it. But then the self, the ego, the self identity. The part of us that coalesces and gets organized around, (coughs) around fear. The part that gets organized around kind of a hard, tight ball of self, of self orientation of a, that's organized around safety or around being someone, or around status, recognition, or is organized around being right, or is organized around desires, or aversions, that self will protest. No, no, can't do that. These Buddhas don't know what they're talking about. <coughs> so the Buddha took his son, his only child, deep into the woods, when he thought that he was ripe and ready to be awakened. Perhaps, in the way I just said last night, that his son's mind was like a clean, stainless cloth ready to take in the dye evenly everywhere. So Rahula's mind was soft, spotless, receptive, malleable, ready, open, present, available to hear something. And so the Buddha took him into deep into the woods. And I don't know how it is for some of you, but I've been in majestic places in the natural world or majestic places inside of me. And in this most wonderful way, I feel so small. In the the most marvelous way, I kind of feel insignificant. But it's marvelous because, I don't know why. But you know, partly because of the idea of being caught up in identity, being someone, it's a big burden to carry, it's a lot of work. But in the natural world, maybe we are nature. Maybe we've come home to who we are in some way. When I was a child, I would lay at bed and as I was falling asleep, and I would look up i mean I was you know with my my with my imagination because I was inside a bedroom, but I'd look up at the at the stars, imagine them above me, and I'd imagine the infinite distance and and size of this amazing universe. And the amount of, tremendous amount of empty space, kind of, I think I used to think of the blackness dotted with stars. And I would think about dying. And I would think that when I die, I'm gonna return to all that. When I die, I'll go home. So I had no idea that I would continue in any meaningful way as kill or anything. But the idea that uh, somehow I had this, like, I mean, I can't defend myself for a little kid for what, what he had to think. I can't explain it to you, but, <laughs> but you know, I had this idea that, wow, that's home. And dying was, didn't seem like a frightening thing. It's just like, I'm returning. Certainly, uh, you know, we're mostly made up of only made up of recycled material and so you know goes back into the I guess the recycling company company comes picks us up <laughs> mm. gets us ready for the next <laughs> usage of all these minerals and carbons and items we have So the Buddha you know, met, met, met with the sun deep in the forest which gives a a per- different perspective or the question of who am I or sense of identity, identification that we might be very important or attached to in the urban settings or social situations. So many things fall away. Things that would be mortifying in a corporate job, but if you're out in the wild, out in nature, I mean, you could spill ketchup all over your shirt. <laughs> and out in the wild, it's like, oh, okay. <clears throat> but in the corporate boardroom. So that's where the Buddha took his son into the woods and being a grove of trees deep in the woods, in my imagination, it was a very quiet place, peaceful place, refreshing place, probably in the heat of the Indian plains. My idea, this was a cool place to go. And they sat there and the Buddha started to teach his son and the way he taught his son. looked very much, looks to me very much like a guided, <coughs> a guided meditation. Scholars try to explain this kind of discourse as being mnemonic, just it was organized so it's easy to remember. I think it was a guided meditation. And the Buddha said to his son, Are your eyes permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, the sun said. Is the experience of seeing permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is the hearing permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is the smelling permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is the tasting permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is the experience of touch permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is it what is known by the mind, mind or mind sense, is it permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. I think maybe this has a deeper meaning. If we don't say impermanent, but we say inconstant, in flux, that all the senses operate where things coming. The experience of how the senses operate, things arise and go, they appear and disappear. And is what is impermanent something that you can have absolute control over? Can you be the sovereign Lord of what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, what you see? what you feel with your body, what you experience with your mind? And the son said, no, I can't be the sovereign Lord who controls everything. And if that world of constancy, of change, you have no control over, does it qualify as yourself? Is what you hear the self? No. Is what you see the self? No. Is what you smell the self? No. Is what you taste the self? No. If what is felt with touch, with the body, is that the self? No. Well then, is what is known by the mind, that which is impermanent and inconstant and changing, that you have no control over, ultimate control, is that self? And his son said, no. And then the Buddha said, something like whatever is directly experienced, which is the kind of evidence for how we can know what's going on in this world. The direct evidence, not our generalities, not our concepts about things, not the conclusions we build, the philosophies we have. Not the imprecise, vague intuitions we have about things, but the actual evidence upon which we build our world. Let that be as it is without seeing it as mine, something I possess, without seeing it as me, something that i identify with right, without seeing it as myself my true self my soul or my essence and if you do this if you don't kind of get yourself tied up with holding on to seeing things as a self if you don't organize yourself around self if you don't coalesce contract bunch up tighten up around a self. Then you'll become disenchanted. And as you become disenchanted, no longer enchanted, no no longer in, in the spell of things, the world, then the drive to be in the spell, the drive to want or to drive of desires, clinging, will begin to fade, the fading away that we've had. And with the fading away, there's cessation, the cessation of clinging, and if that cessation of clinging is complete, full, then the Buddha said, this is the liberation of heart by non-clinging. The liberation of mind through non-clinging. To set the mind, the heart free of all that limits it, contracts it. And in the Buddha's language, all that keeps it bound up, tied up. So the Buddha taught his son this guided meditation around self and what is not self in this beautiful natural setting. Perhaps a setting that lended itself to a different perspective of who we are in the universe and how we are. Maybe a very different setting than if he had just simply done a Facebook post. <laughs> and his son, he just happened to be scrolling through all his Facebook pages. <laughs> and, and then he sees his father says, there's no self. <laughs> and he just keeps scrolling. But well, there more, in, more interesting things there probably doesn't get his attention, but in this natural world, nature, your nature, the nature within, the nature without, forest bathing, breath bathing, awareness bathing, finally, I'll say that we're back to a theme I'm trying to make for this retreat, is the nature of awareness. This wonderful quality aspect of being aware, attention. That that awareness can be lost, because we're caught up and preoccupied, lost from our self-awareness we are certainly aware as we go around our busy life on facebook but there isn't that self-reflective awareness kind of that kind of awareness we know we're aware where we kind of our awareness is kind of sensed or felt as a as its own thing Kind of like in the Bay Area, every once in a while the air is clean, smog is gone, and, one, and then you know it's kind of a surprise to me when I see it. Wow! I didn't realize how dirty the air was, but this is what it can be. The East Bay Hills are so close; the clean air. That that, you know, it's kind of like an absence, right? not because there's nothing in the air. That's why it's so special. But it's like now it stands out, wow. So in that kind of way, the clear awareness stands out. Wow. To rest in awareness, to open to awareness, to trust awareness, to be awareness, to whatever arises, whatever occurs is known in awareness, and as that awareness gets stronger and freer, and we have a sense of our priorities and what's really important in life, the, wi- the natural wisdom of what's helpful and not helpful, what's true and not true, I think we start seeing all kinds of things which we were based our life on, maybe are not so true. Maybe having more money and bigger houses maybe having more status maybe having a subscription to netflix maybe all kinds of maybe having even having a partner these things are not really needed for the glow for the fullness the freedom the warmth of this wonderful thing, this mind that's free, mind awareness which is open. And in the context of this cultivated awareness, all kinds of things will touch it, like our our fear, ego, our self-identity, our ambitions and desires. And they kind of, it's kind of like having a force field or something where it just doesn't, it bounces right off or it kind of doesn't really seduce us or enchant us. The analogy from my little book, The Monastery Within, that if a fly lands on an ant, it's a big deal for the ant. The fly lands on an elephant, doesn't no deal at all for the elephant, nothing. Would you rather go through the life as an ant or as an elephant? As awareness gets more established, and more central, and more free, and more as a thing that holds us, that bees us, that here, it gives a different perspective. It's kind of like that we become big like an elephant. And all kinds of things can arise that, when we're an ant, are difficult. But when awareness is established, it's okay, not really a big deal. And it's kind of very, I think it's very, it's kind of marvelous that we get to be ourselves warts and all when awareness is well established but we have a different perspective on it so we don't pick things up, We just bounces off it doesn't really grab us by the throat anymore we have some a, a, a desire that in the past caused problems for us. There's a desire. Take it or leave it. And a resentment an aversion. Even a little bit of ego arises. It's just a fly buzzing around in the background. We don't have to pick it up or live in it or make it central. I've been quite inspired by some of the, you know, I'm getting to be an L, like a venerable old Buddhist teacher, <laughs> apparently. People are starting to treat me that way, at least. <laughs> it's one of those flies I have to deal with. But, um, the Buddhist practitioners that I meet, many of them teachers who've been practicing longer than me. One of the things that inspires me, but when I'm with them, how at ease they are with admitting their foibles. It's like the you know it's just they're not troubled by it. They just have these foibles. They're not embarrassed. They don't seem to hide it from anybody, and. They're kinda of very open here. This is what I this is what I'm dealing with. This is what it is. Some people will be disappointed, really? After all these years you still have to that? <laughs> but rather the honesty and the willingness to see it, but it just you get the feeling that it's not a big deal, it's just a fly. And nothing to get wrapped up around or Embarrassed about, it or to make it make make an identity out of it. Just here we are. So to breathe, to have your breathing in and breathing out, as nature reminding you. To not get caught. To breathe in and out. And nature is reminding you to stay awake. Stay here. To have breathing in and breathing out. Pointing you to forest bathing that comes and happens when we get out of our way and allow and trust the natural unfolding of our life from inside out. A liberated life is well worth living. And just as good is a life lived on the path to liberation one breath at a time, breathing in and breathing out mindfully.